And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart bring you praise. Holy Spirit, be at work through the preaching of the word that we would not merely be hearers of it, but doers. And Lord, would you work the gospel deeply into our heart that we might worship you, give you glory, and love our neighbor to the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, back in the 1950s, a new discipline emerged in the field of geography called psychogeography. It was birthed in a time of rapid technological development. This was the time when uh, television was emerging. The interstate highway system was being built. Jet travel was becoming common so that the average person could, instead of taking an hour to read the newspaper, could sit down for a few minutes and watch it on TV. Or you could uh, you know, travel between cities very quickly in your car. And you could even travel across continents and oceans in a fraction of the amount of time that it used to take. And it occurred to some at the time that while speed you know, has its advantages, people were beginning to miss the slowness. Speed will get you where you want to go faster, but it's only through slowness that you're able to actually take in the things that speeding past them might deny you. So instead of taking the car, people who were committed to this idea of psychogeography decided to take a walk. Instead of taking the train, they might ride a bike, or instead of taking the ferry, they might row their canoe. And they did that because they felt like it was, there was value rather than speeding past a place to really get into a place. And I thought about this as I was looking at this passage uh, this week, at this psalm, you know, that that idea of uh, moving slowly is not only a wise way to go through the world often, I think it's a wise way to get into God's Word. So that instead of rushing from, you know, sermon series to sermon series or Psalm highlight to Psalm highlight, or little bit of life advice to the next bit of life advice. We, we're, we're wise to, to go slow, to, to linger a bit, to take in, you know, the textual terrain we might otherwise speed past. And I, I think that's certainly critical as we look at this psalm this morning. And, and don't worry, I'm not setting you up for a two-hour sermon. Um, but it is to say that this is a psalm with a lot of twists and turns, a lot of contours that, that we really need to you know, travel through if we're going to take in the fullness of, uh, of what this has uh, to offer us. So uh, I want to begin by getting our bearings to know how this psalm relates to other psalms. Actually, some of the psalms that have, we've preached in this, ser- in this series already. Uh, it turns out that Psalm 55 actually has a lot in common with Psalm 52 and Psalm 54. And uh, in, in the area that that they share in common has to do with this idea of betrayal. In Psalm 52, David's wrestling with the betrayal of a man called Doeg the Edomite who ratted David out to King Saul about where he was. King Saul wanted to kill David, and Doeg told him where he was. It was a great betrayal. Last week, we looked at Psalm 54, where David was wrestling with the betrayal of a group of people, the people of Ziph. And here in Psalm 55, David's dealing with the betrayal of of the closest of friends. And so you take them all together, and it's like they form the concentric circles of our struggles with betrayal. 
Psalm 52 kind of being the outer ring where David's betrayed by foreigners. Psalm 54 is a, the next ring in where he's struggling with the betrayal of his countrymen. And here, kind of at the white hot center, is David struggling with the betrayal of what seems to be the best of friends. And, you know, before we really get into that, you know, I don't know about you, but as I was sitting there this week going, well, this is a psalm about betrayal, I was just thinking, you know, that concept for me is, you know, kind of something that falls more into the world of days of our lives, General Hospital, Downton Abbey. You know, betrayal is not, you know, it seems more the stuff of soap operas and palace intrigue and not something, you know, that I feel like I deal with in my daily life. You know, I don't, I don't come home at the end of the day to, at work and Kit asks me, you know, how was your day? And I go, well, it was really tough. Someone betrayed me, you know. But as I've thought about it, I think this experience of betrayal is actually more common than, than we might want to acknowledge. You might have experienced betrayal in the way David, I think, is experiencing it here, where you've deeply invested in a friendship only to see it easily discarded by the person you thought you were close to. Or maybe you felt a sense of betrayal when your children walk away from the faith you raise them in or the values you raise them with. Or maybe you felt it when someone's spoken ill of you behind your back or gossiped about you. Or maybe you felt it just when you felt left out or not included, you know, passed over at work or in some other way not receiving, you know, the respect you feel like you deserve. You know, all those and, and I think many more are experiences of betrayal. And I suspect this psalm is such tough terrain to navigate because that experience of betrayal is brutal emotional terrain where you're, you're twisting and turning from anguish to anger, from longing to loathing, from a desire to fight to a desire to flee. You're caught up one minute, you know, full of self-righteousness and the next with a sense of regret and, and, and then the very next with a sense that, you know, you're spoiling for revenge. And, and I don't know about you, but whenever I've had to wrestle through this kind of emotional distress, I'm never just angry or just sad or only have reconciliation or only revenge on my mind or merely crying out to God or merely relying on my wits. I'm, I'm all of it. I'm all that stuff. And this prayer is all that stuff. And I think that that fact alone is, is worth appreciating, that, that we even have a prayer like this in the Bible. And I was thinking about this, and I, you know, I'd, I'd happened to watch a cooking show recently, and it was, you know, they were behind the scenes in some fancy restaurant, and there's this line of chefs, and it appeared to me that there were some chefs whose sole job was to take tweezers and grab little fronds of dill and gently place them on the top of a dish you know, to make them beautiful and, and acceptable. And, you know, and I, I looked at that and I, and, you know, I'm dealing with this psalm and I thought, you know, that's how a lot of us pray. I'm going to get my tweezers. I will gently, you know, pluck out this very specific, very dignified, prettied up prayer that I hope will be palatable to the Lord. But the prayers of the Bible aren't like that. Psalm 55 is nothing like that. This is not a tweezer prayer. This is a dump truck prayer. It is the prayer where you just load it all up, all the stuff, and you back it in, and you come as you are, and you dump it on the Lord, trusting that he's able to take it all. 
Now, it's important to pay attention to the beginning of the prayer because of the posture David takes. He's not merely praying. He's taking a posture. He's getting in position. Um, You've heard of getting in the crash position. Well, David's getting in the prayer position. And, And here's how he's doing it. Right off the bat, rapid fire, he asks the Lord for four things. He asks that God would hear him, that God would not hide from him, that the Lord would attend to him, and that the Lord would answer him. In asking uh, that the Lord would, you know, not merely hear his words, but what he's asking here is that he would hear his heart. In asking that he wouldn't hide from him, he's essentially saying, you know, show me the fullness of yourself. Reveal to me who you truly are, because I suspect I very often get you wrong. And that means that not only does David trust that his, his heart would be known by God, but that in praying, David would come to know the heart of God in ways that are currently obscured to him. And that sense of needing the Lord's help is deepened when he says, Lord, attend to me. Uh, this, is, this is the kind of request one might make if they were dropped off in an emergency room, where you would say, I'm banged up and I'm a mess, just heal me, you know, stitch me up, fix me. And finally, critically, he asked for an answer, which I think is at least to say and to admit, I can't sort it out. You've got to give me a needful word here. That's the posture. That's prayer position. Hear me. Don't hide. Attend. Answer. And, and I want to say, you know, if David seems a little demanding here, it's because he absolutely is demanding. He's, he's demanding, but he's not impertinent. This is the demandingness of someone who is deeply depending on the greatness of the Lord's promises. It's like because he knows the greatness of the king, he won't insult him with small prayers. Um, Years ago, uh, one of my very first mentors uh, in ministry uh, was planting a church in in Boston, uh, a church that I eventually... uh, became a pastor of, and, and in the earliest days of the church plant, and some of you ex- have experienced this here, you know, they started off in a hotel conference room. And uh, this hotel conference room happened to be near a um, hospital, and one of the people who started coming to these services was a man who was getting cancer treatments at, uh, uh, there in Boston, and he took this pastor friend out to, uh, uh, to lunch, this friend of mine, and he said, look, I love what you're doing. I'm excited about the ministry and the church. What can I do to support you. And this friend of mine said, man, um, you could buy us a building. That'd be great. And sure enough, this man ended up buying us a building in the center of Cambridge, Massachusetts, a historic, beautiful old church built in 1852, which is still in use today. Well, the backstory of this is this man happened to be from upstate New York, a faithful member of a church there. Not long before he got cancer, he took that pastor out to lunch said, man, I'm so encouraged by what you're doing. What can I do to help you? And the pastor thought for a second. He said, you know, I think the fellowship hall could use some more folding chairs. And when it got to him later that this man had the capacity to buy a building, he went, why did I ask for folding chairs? And I think that's in play here with David. He's not asking for folding chairs. He's asking for the whole building. The 17th century Puritan pastor Thomas Goodwin said that when you pray, 
it's critical to come to the Lord with what he calls a holy boldness. Praying his own great promises back to him. In fact, he insists that Christian prayer should stand so firmly on the person and promises of God that he would, as he passionately put it, sue him for it. Sue him. Do not leave him alone, Goodwin says. Pester him, as it were, with his own promises. Quote the scripture to him. And he, and he goes on to say, and you know, God delights to hear us doing it as a father delights to see this element in his own child who has obviously been listening to what the father has been saying. David takes that posture as a person, restless and moaning with emotional pain. He, is, he, he, he says, I, Lord, I need to hear from you because all I can hear right now is the noise, the noise of the enemy. He says, you know, uh, they've dumped trouble on me, and they, they, they bear a grudge against me. And, and that's all, this turmoil is laid out pretty vividly in verses 4 through 8, where he says, yeah, I'm full of anguish, I'm full of fear. He even says, I've got the terrors of death gripping me. He's got a sense of horror. He, this is a man who is holistically um, a mess, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. No part of his being is untouched by this anguish. And of course, David is no stranger to anguish, but even, you know, in Psalms like we looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 51, where David's murder and adultery had been exposed and he's repenting, he always, you know, has this way of meeting his predicament head on. So it's wild in verses 6 to 8 to come upon something utterly unique in all of David's Psalms. For the first and only time, he doesn't really want to engage his troubles at all, at least at this point in the prayer. He just wants to escape them. You know, I mean, and look, we've all had our escape fantasies, right? I can remember when I was not long out of college, I had a job I was unhappy with. I was considering quitting the job. And a friend of mine said, you know, forget quitting, get fired. And at the time, you know, that was kind of like a great escape fantasy for me. Like, take this job and shove it, kick the water cooler over, storm out, you know, in a blaze of glory. And David's got a little escape fantasy here. He, you know, it might sound even a little bit familiar to you. Get out of the city, away from the drama, the rat race, off the grid, little cabin in the country to the simple life. But, but here's the interesting thing. Unlike Psalm 52 and 54, where David was a young man on the run, keeping one step ahead of Saul, who's out for his life, in Psalm 55, David's not a fugitive anymore. Uh, Saul is long dead, and David has been the king for a long time. And the wild thing is, he finds his, himself in as much trouble on the throne as he did when he was on the run. And, and I think some of that stuff figures in here because I suspect, and I'm, I'm going to admit, I'm reading into the text here, but I suspect that David may be at that place in life where he imagined, I should be at the place where the worst struggles are behind me. You know, I mean, sure, we've, we've all got to pay our dues on the way up, but once you have gotten to the top, shouldn't all that stuff be over? But what he's finding out is that there's actually no simple life to attain or escape to, there's just life. With all its complications, troubles within, troubles without, the struggles persist so that the sin 
you know, we thought we conquered long ago springs up when you least expect it. The relational stability, the emotional maturity we thought we attained at this stage in life is still kind of elusive. All that can make you just want to run away, to get away to the better life. It's striking that when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, a church which was dealing with its own anguish, you know, no small amount of drama there, right? He encouraged them by telling them that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what's so interesting about that is, you know, when Paul talks about this light and momentary affliction, he wasn't talking about a particular stage of life or a particular struggle they were going through. He was talking about all of life. And I don't know if you can relate to this. I mean, maybe you're someone who's imagined that once you land that job or get that promotion or enter that relationship or secure that retirement package, the troubles will be over or at least diminished. And yet, you know, it may be that you find that they, they're, they're still there. And maybe they're worse. Jesus, it turns out, never promised that while life will throw some troubles up at you, as you get older and wiser and richer, the troubles ebb away. No, he never said that. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he didn't leave it there. He went on to say, take heart. I have overcome the world. And, and he tells us that wildly so that we would have peace. Not peace in a circumstance, but peace in our Savior. Not peace in the idea that one day we'll age our way out of troubles or experience our way out of troubles or succeed our way out of troubles or in some other way, by our own efforts, exempt ourselves from the troubles. Not even that we would have peace in striving toward a trouble-free life, but peace that would come by way of trusting in Him. Entrusting Him with the troubles of our lives. That's what David is pressing into. And it becomes clear how desperate that situation is. You know, earlier on, he complained how all he could hear was the noise of the enemy, like, almost like there's this army marching toward Jerusalem. Except it turns out there is no army marching toward Jerusalem. His trouble is Jerusalem. It's not, a, it's not them, it's us. He's talking about his own culture here, a culture that is deeply divided, with everyone at, at one another's throats. Everyone has become like an enemy to the other. And he personifies it in these sort of six afflictions that are reaping havoc in the country. He talks about violence and strife prowling on the city walls and iniquity and trouble within the walls and oppression and fraud doing business in the marketplace. And, you know, he's saying this as the king. The king endowed with awesome powers. Power, you know... Powers at his disposal and making laws and dispatching soldiers. But he, but he seems to know, you know, that, that while you can exert the levers of kingly decrees and military might, that doesn't change the heart. That doesn't rid us of the evil. So he asks the Lord to destroy not people, but evil. And he actually uses a phrase that he plucked from Genesis 11 that refers to the story of Babel when the peoples of the world were not at each other's throats, but unifying together in common cause and defiance of the Lord. Basically imagining that by their wits and their work, they could forego their relationship with God, no dependence upon Him, 
but instead we will build our way up. We'll build a tower and we'll just climb up there to where God is. And God graciously and definitively thwarts that plan by doing exactly what David asks him to do here. He divides their tongues. He doesn't allow unity to cohere around evil, around rebellion against God. And, you know, as intense as that pain is, uh, as, as David's sort of sensing the, the troubles in his city and in his culture, the deepest pain actually isn't societal, it's, it's personal. Wrestling in prayer for a while, David, it's sort of like he has finally crept up on the thing that's been hardest for him in this prayer, the deepest of his troubles. That is the fact that his closest friend has betrayed him. Uh, no one knows exactly who this friend was, but whoever it was, uh, this person was more than a, just a friend. David says, this was my compadre. This was my man. This was my equal, my familiar friend, familiar in the, in the most literal sense of the word, like family. They, they, they were those who had taken sweet counsel together in God's house. This was a friendship in which they worshiped together in church, in essence, you can imagine long conversations, deep solidarity in the faith. So it's no surprise that when David says, look, if this was just an enemy insulting me, I could, I could handle it. Uh, but this is the kind of friend, you know, I raise my kids with. This is someone who's been to my house a million times. We went on vacations together. We led ministry together. We served together. We, we were there in the joys and the sorrows. So this betrayal is particularly bitter. And, and I think it's fair to say there's, there's almost no pain that goes deeper than, than this kind of betrayal. Charles Spurgeon commented on this verse, and all he could say was, none are such real enemies as false friends. The worst kind of enemy. And I suspect that's why we get to the low point of the psalm here. Verse 15 is not going to make anyone's list of life verses. Uh, when David prays, let death steal over them, let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Have mercy. This is about as vivid and brutal as it gets. I have to tell you, I don't like preaching on these verses. <laughs> I'd rather skip over them. Um, they're hard. But I also um, have to say there is more going on here than David just lashing out. Because this prayer doesn't come merely by looking around at his troubles. David prays this way by looking back to God's faithfulness. He does something similar in verse 9 where David drew from that story of Babel asking God to establish justice. Here he's recalling another story where God just did, did just that. The story in number 16 where Korah and his followers tried to lead a rebellion against Moses. And that was a situation where the Lord intervened by doing exactly what David prays here. The ground opened up, it swallowed them up, it covered their households and everything they owned, and they were never to be seen again. You know, okay, well, you still want to ask, why dredge up that old story? Aren't there more productive ways to deal with betrayal than asking that uh, your, these traitors would be swallowed up? Why is this so intense? Well, I think what's going on here is it turns out that the rebellion then and the rebellion now have something in common. Then the rebellion against Moses was a rebellion against more than Moses the person. 
To rebel against Moses the person was at the very same time to rebel against God's good purpose. His good and gracious plan in establishing a people, a covenant people, who would bless the world, be a light for the nations. That's, in essence, what they were rebelling against. They didn't want that. And in the same way, when you're talking about King David, you're never just talking about King David. You know, just one of many in a line of kings, one of dozens of kings around the world at that time. King David is always covenant David. The, the recipient of the gracious covenant of God, which would culminate in the person and work of Jesus. This was the promise to David. The Lord will make a house through whom the Lord will raise up offspring after you, David, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's rebellion against that. Not just King David, but the covenant. David represents something a lot bigger than himself, so that to rebel against him is to turn against something much bigger than just him as a person. It is to turn against that gracious, redemptive promise. So David is passionate about this. He's got a lot of zeal. He's feeling very protective because this is the most precious thing in the world. The good news. And out of a deep awareness of the greatness of God's promise, he prays, you know, weird as it sounds, pastorally. And, you know, I know the word pastor and the pastoral prayer and all that is, evokes, you know, maybe, maybe we could dim the lights, you know, <laughs> put on some soft music. I mean, yeah, that's the work of the pastor, right? Gently guiding the sheep to the greener grass, patting them along the way. David's a musician playing the harp. But of course, critical to the work, critical to the life of the sheep is protecting them, protecting them from that which would consume them. Keeping a wolf from consuming your flock is not the stuff of, you know, sweet harp playing shepherding. No one knows that better than David. It can be the brutal necessary business of protecting God's people for the sake of his name. And I think that's why David goes into mother bear mode here. Because he sees God's good news being opposed and he wants the opposition to it swallowed up. It's no coincidence that David grasps on to greater matters than his own kingship as the prayer goes on. You might remember the psalm began with a cry of anguish when he prayed, give ear to my prayer, O God. Hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me, answer me. But now the tone changes when he comes to see how, how God ha has assured him, has answered him in his anguish. David began longing for the Lord to hear him and not hide for him and attend to him and answer him, and now David says, you've done that. But it's curious the way he says, you have done that. He says, you've done that by saving me, by hearing my voice, by redeeming my soul in, in safety. And look, I just said all this stuff about David being you know, the recipient of the covenant promises. And, you know, I mean, at, at, at very least, you would, you would say, well, David is converted. We know that. And it's, it's weird to see this prayer because this looks like the prayer of someone who has just come to a place of conversion. You've saved me. You've redeemed my soul. But, but here's the thing. This isn't the prayer of someone coming to faith for the first time. It is the prayer of someone counting on faith for the millionth time. 
This is what faith looks like. It's that experience of coming face to face with the depth of, of my own frailty and failings and, and at the same time grabbing on for dear life to the unfailing faithfulness of God. This last week, uh, one of my old professors, one of the real great influences not only in my life but in the life of a whole lot of pastors uh, died. Uh, he lived a good long life. Um, his name was Richard Lovelace. He's actually a native of New Mexico. And... Uh, I think one of the great gifts I got from his classes and his books was, was just the idea that you never move beyond faith, that, that you never move on from the gospel, that despite all those impulses I have that, okay, I've got my, I got my high school degree, and then I've got to get my bachelor's, and next is the master's. He's like, no, no, you never, you never advance beyond it. We live by faith. We're, we're always needful of faith. We never advance beyond the gospel. We're always plumbing its depths. We're always depending on it. We're always taking in new dimensions of its beauty and sufficiency because everything we need is in it, in abundance. So sure, David came to faith long ago, but he never moved on to anything he imagined to be better or more advanced beyond faith in the Lord, beyond depending on him for everything. Lovelace captured this well in one of his books when he said, it is an item of faith that we are children of God, and yet there is plenty of experience in us against that fact. The faith that surmounts this evidence and is able to warm itself at the fire of God's love instead of having to steal love and self-acceptance from other sources is the actual root of holiness. It is a fatal mistake to think of holiness as a possession which we have distinct from our faith. Faith is the very highest form of dependence on God. The highest form. David wants nothing less than the highest form of dependence, and he's not letting go until he gets a hold of it. He grasps on to really the hopelessness in himself and in his world so that he might find hope in the Lord alone. So in the end, painfully persevering prayer comes to this place of really preaching. You know, verse, verse 22 is, is, a, is a word to the congregation. It's a word to the congregation then. It's a word to the congregation now. And, and here's what David, you know, here's the message he wants to preach to us. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. I, I hope we caught that, you know. Uh, it, it's not... Manage your burden with, the, with, a, with a solid assist from the Lord. Lighten your burden. Control your burden. Run away from your burden. No, it's none of those things. It's cast your burden on the Lord. Throw it, all of it, on the Lord. Dump truck it. Because what will certainly crush you, the Lord is glad to carry. You know, this verse is quoted by the Apostle Peter in his first letter. And you get the sense it was particularly precious to him. Uh, he wrote a hard-pressed church as one who had been encouraged by this word, who found this particularly precious so that they would be encouraged by it. And I think it was precious to him because he'd come to learn the truth of it so personally. Of all the disciples, I think it's fair to say the one who was most burdened by all the things was Peter. I mean, when you kind of trace out his life, you go, this is actually a fairly anxious guy. 
He's always anxious for Jesus to get with the program. He's anxious to know how the ministry could be more powerful and effective. He's anxious in the final days of Jesus's life that he not go to the cross. He's anxious once he was taken there not to be associated with Jesus. He's anxious when he found out that Jesus's words that he would be betrayed, you know, uh, that he would betray him were spot on. He's anxious when the women come and say, you know, Jesus isn't in the tomb anymore. He's just anxious all the time, burdened. And I suspect that's why Psalm 55, 22 came to be so sweet to him because it encapsulated the gospel to him so perfectly that he wanted the church to remember it and rely, it, rely on it because he'd come to discover in his own life of anxiety and anguish, full of worries and troubles, that he was spectacularly inadequate for all of it. And Jesus was spectacularly sufficient for whatever you threw upon him. He saw Jesus take all those burdens that were crushing him. He took his pride, his failure, his murderous instincts, his grasping after power, his stupidity, his bitter betrayal. And when he stopped depending on himself and stopped trying to manage and manipulate his troubles and cares, instead, with simple faith, he just cast them and saw Jesus take them. The prayer ends not with David being left empty-handed, merely relieved of his troubles, uh, but endowed with three great assurances, three fruits of faith, that the Lord will sustain you, that he'll never let the righteous fall, and that the Lord will do something about evil. The troubles that seem to prevail in the end won't stand. I mean, we may feel like we, we will be crushed, but in fact, evil's days are numbered. And, and, you know, the last word in this psalm is a summary of the entire psalm, and it's a word of faith where David says, as for me, I trust in you. And look, I, I don't know, I, I, I know what some of you are bearing this morning. You know, I don't know what all of you are bearing, but I do know this. You're all burdened. Everybody's burdened. So know that Jesus doesn't push us away with our burdens to handle things on our own. He, in fact, pulls us in. He urges us to give up on the crushing task of carrying our own load and instead to give it all to him, to, to back up the dump truck and cast it on him. He actually invites us to do that. He gives us this invitation, and I'll end with this. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, you're a great Savior. You're a great King. And I guess I want to go back to sort of the spirit the position David put him in, him, himself in as he began to pray that he wouldn't insult you with small prayers, but because of the greatness of your person, the greatness of your promises, Lord, would you lift our burdens? Would you take them upon you? Would we not hold back? And I, you know, man, some of us may feel like we need to run to this supper and not take, you know, some little wafer and a thimble, but a whole tray and a whole bag of wafers, just if for no other reason to know viscerally, you feed the hungry 
and you quench our thirst and you relieve us of your burdens, Lord. Attend to us as we come to this supper. Thank you that you don't, you know, that this isn't some sacrifice we make where we come up and prove ourselves week in, week out, worthy of your affections. It's very much the opposite. It's, we know that we aren't worthy of your affections, and yet you have loved us with the life of your own son who took, who, who took the fullness of what was cast upon him in the sins of the world. Lord, atoning for our sin, being crushed for us so that we wouldn't be crushed, so that we would have life. Being raised in newness of life so that we may live in you and live by faith. Never get past it. Never get over the greatness of the gospel. So Lord, attend to us for, for your people as we come to this table. Would we remember that your death has done this for us? And so, Lord, would we come rejoicing, glad, grateful, you know, like David, maybe with all the, all the emotions before you in worship. Thank you for meeting us here. Lord, feed our souls and help us to go out of here rejoicing uh, for the great gospel you have accomplished, for the greatness of who you are, for the good of this city and the greatness of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.